switches. I set the sequence myself. This rig goes nowhere without me. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Pick up what you can and run after Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 40, which begins with Furiosa watching the rig drive away. You know, she hates to see it leave, but she loves watching it drive away. And it ends with Max deciding that, okay, Furiosa can get in the war rig. Happy Monday morning. Happy Monday, Julia. I caught up with the You Are Awaited podcast over the weekend before we came back. And there were several points that Yuri and Travis made that I wanted to bring up for discussion, see what you thought about them. First of all, they talked about Max's hair length. Now, obviously, over the course of the series, Max has had short hair and long hair. And here in Fury Road, he started off with his long Thunderdome hair and then got cut back to his more road warrior length. And they looked at that as a sort of symbol for how feral Max was at the moment. When he has his hair long, he's more ruthless. And when he has his hair short, he's more agreeable to sympathetic action. I really like that analysis. Hair in general, in real life and in movies and in books, is just ripe for symbolism. And that's certainly true in this movie and the rest of the series. One thing that I was really hoping they would bring to the table was the talk about blood loss. And they still have no idea how much blood <laughs> Max has lost. So we're still very much in the dark. And yeah. honestly, I'm kind of glad that we're pushing past it. We're getting to the point where enough time has passed that we can stop bringing it up. Because I feel like that was a near constant thing. Constantly saying, oh, how much blood has he lost? Yeah, and it's one of those things that we're just never going to answer. And even if... We got a nurse or a doctor in here to analyze how much blood he lost. He probably lost too much to survive, is my estimate. Mm -hmm. So we're already in the realm of movie magic. Yeah. So we might as well just be happy in the realm of movie magic on that point and move past it. Mm -hmm. And who knows? Maybe Max just fights better when he has only half of the blood in his body, sort of like a drunken master sort of situation. <laughs> Now, when they got to the subject of Angharad, they were talking about the scars on her face, and one of the things that they hypothesized is that they are self-inflicted, that it was a way for her to mar her face in order to, I would say, spite Joe. Oh, for sure, as a way to punish him for things that he has done to her, and also perhaps in an attempt to not be so attractive to him. And also, self-harm is a way for people who feel like they have no control in their lives to have control over something. So that is very much what it could be for her. I'm kind of surprised we didn't bring that up as a possibility. Yeah. Having heard that from Yuri and Travis, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, they probably are self-inflicted. Although I still think my guess that they are scars from an abuse episode are also valid. Yeah, I really could see that being true as well. It could go either way. Speaking of evaluating things either way, 
I know when we first saw the wives, you mentioned that they reminded you of the sirens from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And Yuri and Travis brought up a different set of female Greek figures, specifically the Furies, the female figures who prophesy doom. Okay. I'm pretty good with Greek mythology, but I actually know nothing about the Furies. Mm. Well, in the Hercules cartoon, they were the ones with the single eye that they shared. Oh, see, I always knew them as the Fates. Okay. Yeah. If the Furies and the Fates are the same thing, then I know a little bit. Yeah. They have one eye between them, mostly. The Encyclopedia Britannica website describes them as the daughters of darkness and Gaia. Euripides was the first to speak of them as three in number. Later writers named them Electo, Tisiphone, and Megera, meaning unceasing in anger, avenging of murder, and jealous. And they lived in the underworld and ascended to Earth to pursue the wicked. And they were often identified with spirits of the fertility of Earth. Okay, so they're Greek figures who are aware of evil and seek it out, mm -hmm. go after it to eliminate it. They're also female characters who are named after specific aspects of their character. Like Electo being unceasing in anger and the splendid Angherid being the most prized of Joe's wives. Tisiphone being the avenger of murder, Toast being the knowing. Yes, they're very much labeled, almost like a job title. Yeah. Yeah. So we I don't know how planned that was, but there are several parallels yes. that you could look at with these characters. Speaking of the wives, there is apparently a shot of the dag that was shown in one of the trailers, where in this scene she was looking at the approaching war party and did one of those pinching things where she squishes oh, those, the war like, party squish your head squish your head i wasn't able to find it oh. but yuri and travis remembered it and they identified it as a deleted scene or a cut shot i don't know if it happens later on in the movie or if we passed it and they actually did cut it but they noticed it i sure as heck didn't it almost sounds like a blooper like something that she did in a shot that was like already ruined so she did something funny <laughs> I don't see why not. There were hundreds of hours of footage. Right, because it just doesn't seem like something someone would do, like, in-universe. Although it does feel like something that the Dag would do. Dag is certainly the most... I'm not really sure, like, the words to describe her. Trashy is just not a very nice way to say it. The Dag is just very rough around the edges. That's a good way to put it. So if anybody were to make a funny little gesture like that, it would be her. <laughs> One last thing that I wanted to bring up from the You Are Awaited listening that I was doing. Yuri and Travis were talking about this thing that voice actors do, especially when it comes to children's cartoons. It is a sound called the Keep Alive Groan, and it comes up when a character is attacked by the hero and thrown into a pile of boxes, or tossed off a building, or they land in a pile of garbage. The hero has done something to take this bad guy out, and the voice actors provide this keep alive groan to attach to that character, so that way the kids know that the person who has just been thrown off a building and landed 30 stories below isn't dead, they're just hurt. <laughs> I'm sure that's something that's been around for a long, long time, as long as animation and movie fights have been around but that seems like something that gets used a lot whenever batman's involved <laughs> because back to batman <laughs> because batman has this very specific reputation for not killing people 
I just love how minor of a detail it is. Like, it's everywhere. Every children's cartoon you watch, if there is a human character that is beaten up by the hero, they always have that little keep alive grown. And for some reason, I guess I've just never brought it to the forefront of my mind to acknowledge it, but it's always been there. And that's what they do here with Nux. As he's rolling around on the ground, they give him that keep alive groan so people know he's not dead. Like Very Harry much Houdini. so. Are we ready to dive into this minute? Yes, we are ready to get into the actual meat and potatoes of this minute. And as we start in on minute 40, we got Furiosa followed by all of the wives. And she gets to follow up what she said on Friday by telling them, now pick up what you can and run. Everything in the real world hurts. Now run. And of course, she's telling them to run because she knows that there's a kill switch on the rig. She knows that it's not going to get that far and that they can easily catch up to it. They just need to move. Yeah, there's a few things I really like about this scene. The first thing that I think of whenever I see it is their level of trust in her. Nobody questions her. Nobody really even hesitates. Well, they don't really have the luxury not to trust her. Right. I wonder if there was a conversation. Furiosa comes to them and says, hey, I have this plan. Let's do this. And I wonder if they had a conversation just between the five of them without Furiosa saying, do we want this? Which, of course, is yes. But everybody's in agreement. Do we trust her? What level of trust do we have in her? And they all agreed that they were going to follow her and they were going to trust that she knew what she was doing or she knew how she was going to get them out of troublesome spots. That has to be the case. Because if that conversation hasn't already happened off screen, I feel like now is kind of the time. I know time isn't really allowed for it. The war parties are pressing down on them. But at some point, that conversation needs to happen. So my assumption and my imagination says that it happened after Furiosa presented them with this plan and happened without her present. All right. So I am looking at the comic book here. And there is a certain point where Furiosa has spent a lot of time with the wives and she's taken away at one point and she's taken away uh, and then the chastity belts are introduced. There's a lot that goes on here and I'm not going to try and summarize the whole comic book because I want people to buy it. So the wives are sitting in the harem and they are upset because their situation is just dire. And so they're talking in amongst themselves and it's Angherit who stands up and says, look at us. If we let him win, we will lose ourselves. We will lose our minds. Furiosa showed us to be strong as women. We are not things. And then Angherit hugs the dag and says, your baby will be beautiful because you are beautiful and brave. You had the guts to do what we were afraid to do because the dag did something. She made fun of Joe. She like pantomimed him or something like that. And she was punished for it. But anyway, she says, no more fear. We have each other and we'll find a way out of here together. And it's at that point that Furiosa comes back and is like, get dressed, we're leaving now. And they're like, oh, we knew you'd come. They practically begged her to do it earlier in the story before that point. And so the decision to leave was made primarily by Angherid and all of the other wives trusted her. Okay, so in this scene, maybe it's not so much the rest of the four are following Furiosa without question. Angherid is the first one to move. Mm-hmm. So they're following Ang Herod without question. Yeah. That does seem about right. 
everything that we know about Ang Herod so far, she's trying really hard to be the leader. Mm-hmm. And so far, so good. She's doing a good job so far, I think. Swinging away from the wives for a moment. I have to wonder why Furiosa uses kill switches that stop the engine after a while, like we see in this minute, as opposed to kill switches that wouldn't let you drive the rig in the first place. Probably because there are times when it is advantageous for somebody else to be able to drive it short distances, mostly when doing maintenance on it or setting it up to go on these journeys, like backing it into the right place, getting it ready for the trailer to be hooked on. Okay. Our introduction to Furiosa and the rig, it's it's tough to put a timeline on that, but when she's walking up, it feels like the first time she's walking onto this scene. Not that she's already on the scene because she put the rig there. It feels like somebody else put the rig there and she is now approaching it for the first time. So that is a time when a short distance or a short time frame of somebody else driving it would be helpful. Okay, that makes sense. Also, as the wives run after Furiosa and after Inherit and all them, good on Toast for grabbing the shotgun. Always good not to leave guns behind. Yep. And then as the dag runs by the pile of chastity belts, she stops. She doesn't pick one up, but she turns around and kicks it and spits at it. This little show of defiance, which is only for herself. Mm. Nobody else can see her. And I really like that because... Some things that we do in life are for other people and are meant to be seen. And that's okay. When you say it like that, it kind of sounds selfish, like you're doing something to be noticed. But that's okay. And some things are just for you. And I think the things that we do so that people can see us and the things that we do so they can't see us say a lot about who we are and how we relate to the world and to other people. So she is doing this act of defiance just for her. Nobody else can see her do it. I think that says something about her spirit, her fieriness, that it's not something she puts on as a show. It's something that is in her all the time that is just who she is. Something that like visually came to mind when the wives are told to grab anything they can and run kind of made me think of King's Quest. I don't know which number, but it's one of the one of the ones where the prince ends up shipwrecked on a beach and You need to leave the beach, but before you do, you need to look around in the sand because there's stuff there that you need later on down the road. So it kind of feels like, all right, make sure that anything useful from this scene that is here, you grab it, and then you move on to start solving your problems and your mysteries. Like the shotgun and the bundle of cloth that Toast grabs and the bolt cutters that the dag has. Exactly. Grab those up, put them in your bag of holding... And then move on. Mm -hmm. Because they are chasing after Max, who is in the rig, and he is tooling right along. He's riding pretty high on the horse, enough so that he can breathe a sigh of relief and start fiddling with his muzzle again. But as he goes, the rig starts making these sounds and slowing down. And Max started this rig back in minute 39, around second 27, and the engine cuts out this minute around second 25. So the engine starts up, and gives you one minute of actual runtime. And given that the war rig is really big and heavy, I don't imagine Max was able to get very far. Nope. So one minute of runtime. Which, when you're not pulling a trailer, I'm sure you can move around the rig just fine to get it in position 
for getting loaded up with a tanker or going from spot to spot within the citadel. Yes. It's not like he needs to sit in traffic. Uh, Yeah. Although, I think somebody who is experienced, who has done it over and over again, can get that rig from its storage location out into the center floor of the citadel and into position, like, pretty perfectly into position to be hooked to the tanker lower down within a minute. But heaven help a newbie. (laughs) I think it might take a newbie more than a minute to do it. And there's nothing to say that the war boys don't know the kill switch sequence. Max is an outsider. He knows very little about the Citadel. So it could just be if you're one of those war boys that has to prep things for the Imperators, you just might know the kill switch sequence. I was inclined to automatically disagree with you, but then I was thinking about people in power and the people who serve them closely on a personal level. Those people know more about that person in power than anybody in the whole world. They know all sorts of things that the greater crowds would kill for. They just have very intimate knowledge of that person in power. Like, think of that war pup who helps Joe put on his armor. Mm -hmm. I'll bet you the masses have no idea how physically encumbered Joe is. But that war pup does. He Mm -hmm. knows exactly what physical condition Joe is in. And that war pup probably has unfettered access to Joe's chambers. Unfettered access. So along that train of thought... The war boys who assist Furiosa in maintaining the rig have intimate access to that rig. So they probably do know the kill switch. I mean, it makes sense to me. I imagine that Furiosa does keep it quite close to her chest. But in order for her to function, somebody else has to know. Exactly. Just as a practical thing. Yeah. Like the mechanic, the primary mechanic has to know the switch sequence. But without that sequence, you're left in a situation like Max finds himself in. He's mashing on the accelerator, he's pounding on the dashboard, and he gets to this point where he just rolls his head back and admits defeat. Not that he says it out loud, obviously. He's (laughs) manacled and he doesn't talk to himself out loud like this, but you get the idea. And this is the state that Furiosa and the others find him in when they catch up to the rig, and Furiosa pulls down the harness attached to her prosthetic off of the mirror. Because honestly, where are you going to find another one of those? It's a one of a kind. So thank goodness they were able to catch up. And as she's standing down below the window, she looks up at him and she says, kill switches. And Max peers out the window like, what are you talking about? A little detail that I find interesting is that as Furiosa, she runs up to the side of the rig. She's still holding the wrench. That she was cleaning off the rig with mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. She's still holding it. First thing she does is throws it on the ground. Yep. Like, you need that. Don't throw it on the ground. It's a tool to help you run the rig. <laughs> like, throw it somewhere else. We'll definitely need to pay attention to see if she picks it up when she gets in the rig. Yeah, I don't think she does. I do not think she does. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> so as Furiosa begins to put on her prosthetic arm... She comments that she set the sequence herself and that the rig goes nowhere without her. And going back to that discussion about who knows the sequence, if one of the black fingers that are intimately 
acquainted with the war rig was there, they could probably get it started. But in this instance, yeah, the war rig goes nowhere without Furiosa. So what she says is objectively true from a certain point of view. From a certain point of view? I think this method, this key that she has to make sure only she can drive the rig is genius. It gives her power. And in this world where women are expected to play a certain role of being breeders or milk mothers or nothing. Have we ever thought about, is she the only female imperator or a female in power in any way? We haven't discussed it, but that very well could be the case. Yeah. We don't see any evidence to the contrary, unless you count Miss Giddy. Yeah, I was going to say, Miss Giddy has a certain amount of power, but eh, not no, really. She has... She's a captive. She has position. She doesn't have power. Mm, very true. Very um, important distinction. Mm -hmm. So Furiosa is trying to maintain power along with her position. Mm. You might remember back when we were talking about Max and Furiosa's fight, the idea of George Miller repeating actions in shots. And I bring that up because between the shot around second 50, or more accurately, second 51, frame 15, we get that wide shot of Max in the rig and Furiosa down below with the wives running in behind her and she's putting on the harness. And then when we switch angles at 53 seconds, the harness is nowhere near as on as it was in the last shot. And I don't see that so much as an error as much as just a quirk of having so many hours of footage. You can't put a harness on the same way twice when it's that gangly and unwieldy. They didn't think I'd notice, <laughs> but I noticed. I'm curious what George's goal is in showing us things in this way. In the past, it has been for an explosion. And what was something else that we saw happen in that way? Like shots repeating. Maybe it's not happened yet. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. You're going to have to be a bit more specific with me. You were talking about how he repeats shots. So you see the same thing happen kind of over and over again, maybe from different angles, but over and over again. Mm. We've seen that happen before. Like the, he did it with an explosion of like a vehicle, right? There's been a lot of vehicle explosions. I know, I know but we talked about it specifically. But I can't remember it. Okay, fine. <laughs> the one that I can remember is the wives pulling on the chain. That's the one I can remember at this moment. I believe you. That it happened. I just can't remember it. The wives pulling on the chain? Yeah. When Max and Furiosa were fighting, the wives ran up oh, and grabbed yes. Max's chain. And okay. we saw them at a distance. And then we had another cut of them doing it closer up. Yes. And we were talking about how instead of doing a fight in a wide shot, we were able to do a fight in a series of closer shots. And it's just background actions were repeated. Everything's happening at the same time. We're just seeing it in sequence. Yes. So I'm wondering if there is a storytelling element to it. Like if he's doing this method of editing for specific events, large and small, where maybe it's something we're particularly supposed to pay attention to. He's very good at drawing our eye and making mm -hmm. sure we see what he wants us to see. So I'm wondering if this is one of the tools that he uses to do that. Like are we specifically supposed to notice that she is grabbing her arm and putting it back on. And it could also just be a side effect of Margaret Sixel being the editor on this movie, having not done an action film before. And just trying something new. Exactly. If you don't know what's wrong, then everything is technically right. I like the idea of pulling in somebody new who hasn't 
developed a toolkit. Is it that she never edited before or is it that she never edited an action movie before? It's the action movie part because she was the editor on Babe Pig in the City. She was the editor on Happy Feet. Okay. It's just this is a different sort of movie. Okay. So she wasn't burdened with all of the editing tactics of an action movie editor. Mm -hmm. She was able to come at it from a different angle. I wanted to make sure we threw her in there and got her the props. Yes, because while (laughs) George is the one who sets the direction, she's the one who edited this stuff together. Mm -hmm. She's the one that came up with these ideas of, you know, specific methods. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that relationship is like, an editor and a director. Is the director with the editor? Do they hang out while she's editing so that it's kind of a collaboration? Or do they just maybe sit down and take notes like, okay, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for. These are what I have in my head. And then she goes and does it more on her own and just presents, okay, here's the scene. Let's take notes and redo and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's how it is. Yeah. Having never done it myself, I think that's how it is. I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't work in Hollywood. The farthest thing from Hollywood. (laughs) I can imagine that's an incredibly difficult job. Oh, of course. Because you and I have both edited. But we do audio and not video. Well, yes. I've done a little bit of video editing in the past, but nothing significant. Yeah. Although there have been times where I have asked you to remove something from editing while editing. So that's kind of along those same lines. Like, I'm not doing the work myself, but there is something in there that I don't like, and I don't want it to end up in the final product. Mm -hmm. For sure. (laughs) So here at the tail end of minute 40, Max peers out the window, and talking to Furiosa, he says, you can get in, which is definitely not how Furiosa is going to want things to go. So coming up on Wednesday, Furiosa is going to flat out refuse to leave the wives. Max will, of course, be petulant about it, and (laughs) Furiosa is going to offer to help Max remove his muzzle. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 40 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. <laughs>